Okay, one thing I neglected to do last week is that is um, talk about some books. Um, this one book I think is um, I really, if you're interested to reflect a little deeper on this, I think this is a really helpful first stop to go. Uh, what about Free Will by Scott Christensen, Reconciling Our Choices with God's Sovereignty. As I've been preparing for this series, I found this uh, particularly helpful um, and so I'm not going to uh, attribute everything I... Every time I am re, uh, indebted to him in some way, I'm not going to reference that. If I quote him directly, I'll tell you. Um, but just the way he develops things has been helpful, as I thought could go at it this way, could go at it that way. Uh, his approach sometimes has been helpful. And oftentimes when I'm quoting someone, I'm actually quoting a particular author that uh, Scott Christensen quotes. I have one of these on the book knock if you're interested if it disappears in the next week or two, I'll buy one or two more. Just a few other books I have found helpful. Um, I want to give credit of, of books that have been um, refining for me. One is called Excusing Sinners and Blaming God. This is kind of a, more of a dense philosophical analysis of the issues uh, by Guilliam um, Young. And um, he's actually just released a, a new book. I think it's a testimony of a French atheist or something like that, which I've heard really good reviews of. Um, another book, No Other God by John Frame, um, has, uh, is significant. And then um, a really thick book uh, by John Piper called Providence. And that has been really good in just how he develops issues of God's sovereignty and providence in this world. So just some comments about resources. Any questions about that? Okay. I just want to review, on maybe some of you that are here this week weren't here last week. If you were here last week, here's just some quick, uh, quick recap. We looked at the defin- some definitions of uh, sovereignty and providence. And uh, where sovereignty speaks of the attribute of God, providence speaks of his working in creation. Um, so... Just a helpful way to remember this, sovereignty speaks of who God is in his nature. God is sovereign. He was sovereign before he created anything. That is a description of his nature. Uh, He works through providence. That speaks of what God is doing in creation. Then uh, last week, I just want to recap here um, as a summary um, of where we're going and what I think is the biblical doctrine and that is, we see this in Westminster Confession, numerous places, but in 3.1, God's eternal decree. I like this because it, it packages together the definition that I, I think is biblical, but also really puts forward some of the issues in its summary. God's eternal decree, God from all eternity, did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet, in stating that, thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. So they're looking at God's decrees. God has purposed certain things to happen. And those things certainly will happen. Scripture's clear about that. And God doesn't actually communicate the mechanism that that happens. 
um, and we need to be clear what God does say he does do. And also, as we state that, be careful that we um, um, clarify that so we would say neither is God the author of sin. So in God decreeing all things that happen, we are saying he's not the author of sin. I'm just going to skip this last one. And then finally, we looked at the definitions of compatibilism and libertarianism. And again, these are big words, but I don't want you to be afraid of these. They're simple words insofar as a simple concept. Compatibilism is the view that determines it is um, that uh, determinism is compatible with moral responsibility. So that definition from the Westminster Confession, God's decrees, the will, his will and purposes that certainly are brought about in creation, that statement of God's decree and will is compatible with human responsibility. So compatibilism, just think compatible. And then there's libertarian free will, which, would, which we could state this way, the ability to make free choices that are not determined. That is, a more careful way to say that would be the freedom of contrary choice. And then finally, we looked at Romans 9. And in Romans 9, one of the key takeaways for me personally, and I think for us as we address this subject uh, in Scripture, is as you read through Romans 9, and I won't read that again, Paul is presenting some truths about who God is and how he works in this world, particularly how God is fulfilling his purposes in the nation of Israel. And um, he presents two possible questions or responses someone might have in hearing what he is saying about who God is and how he works. And um, a big takeaway for me here is that Paul expects people to initially see the way God works as unreasonable. So the way he frames the questions in uh, Romans 9, um, I think puts words to our thoughts, and, and I think as we read Romans 9, we go, yeah, that's the kind of question I have. Thank you for giving me that question. Maybe you didn't have it quite formed that way. But Paul, as, as it were, presents two key questions that might, be, um, that might be given in response to what he has just spoken of in the purposes, plans, and actions of God. The first response is, as I'm reading this, it seems like God is unjust. That's the way we might tend to read what Paul says. So Paul says, however you've just read what I've said, if you think what I'm saying is that God is unjust, you don't understand what I've said. You've drawn the wrong implication from what I said. And if God is sovereignly ruling over, this, over his creation and providentially working in his creation, then... Surely we would say, if he purposes a certain action, and that action is, not, is evil, then how can that person be charged with being at fault? Because didn't God say it should happen that way? So I think this is helpful um, in how we approach it. For firstly, um, as we wrestle with this, I think these are things every Christian throughout the generations has wrestled with, right from the first generation of the church, and I would submit into the Old Testament as well. People who have submitted to the Creator have wrestled with the nature of how God works in this world. 
I think we see that in the life of Job. Uh, He's wrestling with that. And ultimately, God doesn't tell Job all the details, all the rationale. He just says to Job, I'm God, trust me. And God doesn't give the mechanisms. He doesn't describe all the mechanisms of how he works. But he does give us some clear statements about what he does and how we're accountable in his world. Um, so maybe not, some other ways to state these two questions might be, um, if God determines all things, including the evil that occurs in this world, then God should be held accountable for that evil. Or maybe another way of saying it, if God determines all things, then people have no real choice, and so it would be unjust for God to judge or punish them. And then maybe you would form that question in some different ways, I'm wondering if some of you have another way that question comes to your mind or you form that question or those two questions. Any other ways you might frame that question? John, how would you frame that question? Oh, could it be that in overall matters, they may not be able to change, but perhaps could it be in smaller things like individual lives that those matters are Okay, so you're, you're saying maybe like on like a top level, we could say something of God's working. And you, so you're saying, is there a difference between in a general sense, God does something in a particular sense? Okay. Yeah, Matt. Okay, yeah, drilling down, am I using the word unreasonable in a particular logic way or unreasonable in it doesn't, uh, it, there's not consistency in how, who God works and how he expects us to work? Would that be fair? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm using unreasonable in the broad, most broad sense. So I don't know, maybe another word. I don't like that. That's not fair. It doesn't make sense to me. It's not intuitively satisfying. I and mean, what word would you use, Matt? Yeah, okay. You just want to kind of refine what we're kind of talking about, yeah. Yep. Yeah, good. Okay, so um, what I would like to do is um, a risky thing. And that is I want to, in the next few minutes, um, talk about the way I'm phrasing it is the the libertarian proposal. That is, um, I'm trying to um, summarize what the the non-compatibilism perspective is Um, and to talk about, can I say, the greatest 
um, problem a libertarian would have on a compatibilist view of Scripture. So I'm going to try to summarize that and um, in that um, give some brief responses. Um, Because the reason I'm doing it this way is because I, I don't think it's helpful all the way through the class to to con- conduct like a, an, a particular argumentation. What I want to do is, is present here today what I think is the reasons or rationale against what I'll be teaching. And then as we go through this class and various teachers teach, I want us to be working hard at giving a reasoned scriptural explanation, but focus, can I say, on a positive um, explanation of scripture. So as we go along... You could put your hand up and say, um, you just said that. Could you clarify the implications one way or another? Um, so today I'd like to try to do that. And if you, if you might think there'd be a fairer way to represent a position, go ahead, put your hand up, and um, I'm, I'm open to that. Um, I'm not trying to create a straw man. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to present what I think are some strong um, arguments against and I think the arguments that, for me, get, the, get, get um, the most traction to say I can understand why you critique this understanding of Scripture a certain way. So, the libertarian proposal. God is love, and compatibilism violates God's character, the nature of personal relationship, and of genuine choice. So, um, let me just say this to begin with. Like, when we get to theological debate, sometimes it kind of gets a bit scrappy. Um, sometimes you're offended, someone disagrees with you. Sometimes you feel really defensive. I just want you to see that those who would have a libertarian perspective are doing so because they believe the stakes are high in having the compatibilist view of Scripture. They would see that... The doctrine we're teaching here this summer is profoundly against the character of God. It violates, so I'm using that word strongly, it violates God's character of love. It violates the possibility of genuine and true personal relationships. And it violates the reality of humans having genuine choice. So they're they're significant challenges, I think, uh, that we should um, respond to carefully and thoughtfully as we look at God's word. So as we, as we think uh, in, about this, I'm going to look at it in two different places. Firstly, I'm going to look at it in as, so far as the, the concern that determinism is incompatible with God's love. So here the reasoning is that if God determines all things, including human action, then he wills for humans to do evil. And thus God wills evil. And if God wills evil, that makes God evil. Um, so an illustration that might be used, I want to be careful how we use illustrations, but um, when, when you hear an illustration, don't try to poke holes in the illustration, but try to resonate with the main point of the illustration. So here the illustration uh, would be, it's kind of like God is like the mafia Don. He never actually kills anyone, but he's at the top of the structure, and he says who needs to be killed, 
And he says how they need to be killed. And so we would say, well, though the mafia don does not directly kill anyone, he has murderous intentions, and his murderous intentions are carried out with his knowledge and will and desire for people to be killed. And, and so that the, the critique here of compatibilism is that for us to say that God determines all things, it's kind of like this mafia don. If God determines all things, that means he wills for humans to do evil. Thus God wills evil to happen, and so this makes God evil. Question, John. Oh, I, I completely agree. And so, so uh, to your point, th- this critique of compatibilism is a serious critique. Is our view of Scripture such that we are saying indirectly, God is the author of evil, that he wills evil, and therefore such a God is evil, right? And so um, Roger Olson um, says this in his critique of compatibilism, this kind of God is at best morally ambiguous, and at worst, a moral monster, hardly distinguishable from the devil. He continues on, in light of all the evil and innocent suffering in the world, God must therefore have limited himself in some way, and so not be charged with evil. Now, as we read scripture, we would agree To assign evil intentions, desires, or acts to God is fundamentally unbiblical. I would go so far as to say it is a pagan notion. 1 John 1.5, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So, we want to affirm, yes, we, we, we don't want to charge God with evil. There's nowhere in scripture where we would say God is evil, where he can be charged with evil, where he's morally reprehensible. God is holiness. He is pure and righteous in all his deeds. So we agree on the instinct. God is holy and he does no evil. The question is, is the critique of compatibilism valid that if you have a compatibilistic view, you necessarily see God as evil? So that's, a, that's kind of a reasoning implication that we have there. Um, so we, we are, as it were fighting ultimately for the, for the same goal. We, we are longing for the same goal, that God, the holy God of Scripture, is seen to be holy and pure in all that he does, and that in no way should there be a charge of evil against him. And that whatever our understanding of Scripture is, always we acknowledge God is holy, and all that he does is holy and pure and righteous. So the question then comes, how do we account best for God is holy and in this world is evil. That's, that ultimately is a problem of theodicy. How do you explain the presence of evil? That would be a whole class in and of itself. But I want you to feel at the very least we're wrestling in our minds. Eternal, uncreated, creates a world in which we find great evil and great suffering. And in which this holy God is certain to meter out judgment on unrighteousness. How do we reconcile those two realities? And so both the libertarian and compatibilists are wanting to reconcile those well and biblically. My conviction is that the compatibilist view 
most satisfying and consistently reconciles those two views. But we're trying to do the same thing. We're trying to reconcile these two realities. God is holy and pure. We can charge him for no evil. And evil exists. But as we look at this, does the libertarian proposal actually solve the dilemma? Does it give a satisfying explanation for God's a perfect and holy creator and there is evil in this world? So the libertarian proposal is saying God is a loving God. And as a loving God, God has created humans with the liberty to make any kind of choice. And that this liberty of choice is of great value to God. It's an important thing as he considers the nature of humanity. In fact, it is such a high value that God is not willing to go against human free choice, even if it means people make evil choices. So there is an inner rationalist trying to understand how could a holy, loving God allow evil. The reason he allows evil is because he's a loving God and he's created humans to have free choice and God in no way will abrogate the genuine free choice of people. And so that is a way that they are seeking to bring together the love of God and the presence of evil. God loves people so much that he's willing to give them the freedom to make evil decisions. Does that make sense, how I'm trying to bring those things together? Um, So Roger Olson says this, God values the liberty he gave his human creatures, and he will not abrogate it, even though it means sin and evil enter creation. God permits, but God, God does not will or cause sin and evil. Now, now, my problem with this is, ultimately, I don't, I don't find it satisfying, personally, and I don't find it logically satisfying, and I certainly don't find it biblically satisfying. Why do I say that? Well, if God, in his power and love, does everything possible, but in the final analysis chooses not to prevent people making evil choices and doing evil actions and causing sufferings, then... Is he a loving God? Further, since people have the liberty of free choice, God limits himself and so chooses not to influence people's decisions in any meaningful way since people's decisions are not determined. Well, there's one other... uh, Oops. My notes and my keynote don't sync up here. There's one other implication, that a loving God, think about this. This is where I'm kind of pushing the logic back. A loving God creates humans, knowing that potential for evil exists. So the loving, all-knowing God knows if he creates people, many people will commit evil. And there will be tremendous suffering as a result of that evil. And there will be eternal judgment for many because of the evil they commit. So, a loving God creates knowing that suffering will happen and that there will be judgment. So, I think we can push that back and say, how can we um, give an explanation for a loving God who creates 
knowing evil will occur. I think we still have a problem trying to reconcile the love of God with the presence of evil. So I don't think, it, I don't think the libertarian proposal actually gives a satisfying response. It just pushes the explanation back a step, but doesn't go all the way to satisfy how we reconcile a loving God with the presence of evil. Yeah, Brian. Yeah, and, and I think just if we just kind of think about our human intuitions, that's where we go. Like, I'm a loving person. Would I knowingly create? Would I knowingly do something that would create, which would give, which would even if you use permission language, would I knowingly create something that would bring into being great evil and suffering? How could that be a loving thing to do? So I, I don't. Yeah, I don't think it, it doesn't get at that wrestling that we have to reconcile our understanding of the love of God and the presence of evil. Yeah, Lisa. I was thinking about like the parent-child relationship. Yeah. I knew before I had children, I'm going to bring them into this world that's full of sin. They're going to be sinners. They're going to have troubles. Their life is not always going to be easy. So do I bring them into this world to suffer? Yes, because I love them. Do I allow them to have trials and sins that maybe I could have prevented? Yeah, I, I think I think that's a way that we can kind of, from the uh, the libertarian proposal, I think that's the way, one of the ways that they kind of explain the presence, the the the, the nature of God's love, and the dynamic of real relationship in making free choices. It is an explanation. I don't find it an ultimately satisfying explanation, because you. You still are having to say, God in His love purposes, or God in His love knowingly creates a situation in which there will be great suffering, and not all the suffering we can explain in a like intimate relationship dynamic, because there'll be a lot of people who will be judged eternally, and there's a lot of evil that will be inflicted on people. So you still have to, in your mind, somehow reconcile the loving God knowingly allows evil. Yeah, Brian. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we, we are within a context where we have to make that choice as opposed to, the, to God who creates a context where evil begins to exist and evil flourishes and great suffering results as a, as a consequence of evil. Yeah. Okay, John, I want to keep, keep going on here. Um, 
So I think as we think about this, we might, another way we might reflect on this is that when evil is occurring, not only in the, from the creational side, but the present active side, when evil is occurring, God is either unable to intervene, that's one possibility, the, or he chooses not to intervene. So let's go back to our Mafia Don illustration. Maybe this is like a police officer. He's on the scene. He's watching someone get beaten up. He doesn't actually do the beating. He has, a, he has the ability to intervene, but he chooses not to intervene. Now, I, I think, again, um, I'm appealing kind of to uh, intuitive human experience here. I, I understand. But we would say... That, well, though he didn't actually do the beating, we charge him with some culpability in not preventing the evil that he saw occurring. So again, I think the libertarian proposal still has trouble fully reconciling the love of God, not only the potential of evil, but the occurrence of evil. And we still haven't got away with how could a loving God either create a world where evil exists or how could a loving God stand by when evil occurs, knowing the suffering um, that comes about because of that. So while I think there's some initial intuitive desire not to charge God with evil in this way, I think the reasoning doesn't ultimately resolve the problem we have. In fact, I... I see it as um, creating some significant problems. One of those is that um, um, one of those would be that. Let me just see where. Yeah, one of those is that evil has a kind of randomness and meaninglessness to it um, that somehow sits outside of the will of God. I think Scott Haferman, I, I like this quote here, and so I, I have it in full because I think this kind of reasons out for us um, kind of what's, what's, what's at work here. To limit God's love to empathy is to leave the evil of our world unchecked and beyond God's control and hence without an ultimate purpose. If God enters into the affairs of history only after they take place or merely emphasizes, empathizes with them from afar then evil itself remains meaningless. From this perspective, all we can say when evil strikes is that we happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time under the wrong circumstances, all of which has nothing to do with God's will. Moreover, since evil is not just an occasional event, but also characterizes the human heart, this means that God, for all intents and purposes, is fenced off from our entire lives. So this is kind of a philosophical arc of reasoning, but I think it's important to kind of think through what are the implications there are in this line of reasoning that critiques um, this idea that God is a sovereign God who determines all things and that people make choices that they are held accountable for. The critique is that a loving God would not work that way. A loving God does not determine actions. In fact, a loving God may permit evil, but in no way is he orchestrating his purposes and plans through evil. 
So that's, that's what we might call a, a logical um, inference from that. So I want to go to two, two passages now to kind of reflect on implications here. First is James 1. And I want to go to James 1 just because we're, we're affirming the unity of our perspective. James 1, 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The focus there is that God... Let no one say when they are tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Look at verse 13 for a minute, and and kind of, let me put some different words to it. Let no one say, since God determines all things, then the sin I just did was determined by God in the first place, so it had to happen. Don't reason that way. Because God is not evil. He has no evil desires in him. He doesn't tempt people to do evil. You can't say anything about God's intentions being evil. Don't reason that way. So we are agreed in the character and nature of God. He does not tempt. He is not. Um, he does, has no evil intents. He's not the author of sin. He doesn't create evil. We should never say any of those things. But I want to turn now to, to Genesis 50, because I think Genesis 50 helpfully juxtaposes these issues for us. So Genesis 50, Jacob has died, and Joseph's brothers are now really afraid. We did some really, really evil things to our brother. And we're afraid now that now that our father is dead, now that J- Joseph is no longer living in this sense of honor in the presence of Jacob, that Joseph's going to come back and he's going to bring some swift recompense. So they're afraid for their lives. Verse 15 of Genesis 50, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So notice the emphasis there on their recognition of their evil that they did to him. Then if you drop down to verse 19, But Joseph said to them, when they've gone to him, Do not fear, for I am in the place of God. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be alive, should be kept alive as they are today. So here, what do we know of the brothers' intentions? They intended to do evil. Their desire was to do evil. They made choices to do evil. Their intent was to do evil. And what's revealed about God's intention? That his purpose was for good, that Joseph was the man. Yeah, so his purpose was for good. He had good intentions. So, so here we have two perspectives about the same event. The intentions of the people who made those choices and the intention of the creator 
the God who rules over all things, and what he intended to accomplish. Now, sometimes someone might say, well, this is an exceptional circumstance, and so it doesn't represent the normal way that God works. Um, And I I can understand why someone might say that, but my two responses to that are, firstly, on what basis do you say this is not the normal way that God works? I think that lacks a scriptural defense. There might be a logical defense. I think it lacks a scriptural defense. And secondly, even if it is exceptional, even if this is the only instance in scripture like this, all you need is one instance where God is intending people to do evil things and that he's intending that to happen to accomplish his purposes. You only need one instance. Um, And we have at least one. I think this is really clear. There are many others. But I think this is one. So I want us to think how we might tend to... We don't tend to, I think, reason clearly, but I think this is a fair representation of how we might reason through this. When we first read this and have a problem. So firstly, the intent of the brothers was to do evil. We agree with that. Then we might say, well, if God intended the same event, then the intent of God was for the brothers to do evil. And if God's intent was for the brothers to do evil, then God intends to do evil. That's the way we might reason this out. And I think that kind of reasoning is what's ultimately behind um, if God is love, a loving God would in no way, could in no way, determine any kind of evil. And I think that's the way we kind of intuitively, intuitively reason through that. But I want to think a little more attentively to this passage in Genesis. Um, so let's maybe make a few statements again. If, uh, firstly, the intent of the brothers was to do evil. That's what the passage says. What was God's intent? The intent of God was to do good through their evil. So the scripture is very clear. The humans had one intention. It was an evil intention. God had another intention. And that was not an evil intention. It was a good intention. God does not call their evil good, so we're not equivocating here. We're not playing with words. God's intentions and the brother's intentions are not related to the act of evil in the same way. This is the the implication from this passage. So the brothers are intending to do evil event, God is intending to do good. Same event. God is intending to do good in the act of um, the brother's evil. Either God is intending to do evil, and the passage is wrong, or he actually is intending to do good, in which case the way we should think about the operation of man's intent and their evil actions is not the same sequence of, or mechanism in how God intends and there be human action. Yeah, Andrew. Would, you, would your position be that God Uh, so you're asking, is, are you asking a different question? Like, uh, you're asking, am I... 
Um, yes. Yeah. So when we ask that question, we're asking, we're trying to figure out what is it exactly that God is intending? Okay. So at the very least, we're saying the events that occurred, God intended. Um, Now we have a question of mechanism. Are we saying that God intended for the brothers to make the choice? Did he? So is there some kind of intention where that becomes God's determining act within the choice? Is that an intention maybe of secondary causes and that God set the situation up in such a way that they, made the, that they did that evil? I don't know. Is there, can you think of another way to think about that? Yeah, 19 and 20. Um, yeah, so I'm using the word intention for, for meant that that was the, the desired outcome, that the, the inclinations, desires, purposes of the brothers was to do evil, and they did evil, the act was evil, and that God is saying that he intends that same action to be for good. So maybe you have another way. Maybe someone can ask a question a similar way. Yeah, Lisa. If I, 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 I'm going to say yes and no. No insofar as when we ask that question, it sounds like, let me, I can maybe refine that. Did God force the brothers to make the choice. And, and, and so this is getting at the heart of how we understand the relationship between God's determination and the nature of human choice. And so I think throughout Scripture what we see is that God determines certain things to happen in a divine way which in no way um, takes away the ability of that person to make a volitional choice. And so that's, that's what I'm trying to kind of do here as we look at this verse, that we, we, can, we can reason with this verse in different ways. And what I'm trying to say is I think the way we should reason with this verse is to, is to say clearly... They, they, they meant this to do evil, and, and they would be rightly charged with the act of evil. And God meant the same thing to happen. At the very least, we can say, the scripture says, God intended for this evil action. 
even if we kind of not look at the actual choice, we don't go down to the level of volitional choice, we, can, we still have meaning language here, intention language. God intended for this evil action to occur. And, and this is getting back to the original challenge is, would a loving God purpose for evil? And the libertarian proposition is that, no, he creates a situation which gives people the freedom to make a choice of good or bad, good or evil, but he never actually determines that evil to happen. And, and so as I look at this verse, I don't think we've escaped that dilemma. We still have the dilemma of intent language that God intends for evil to occur. And so I still think we're, we're wrestling with how do we reconcile those two realities. Steve. Sure, if I can respond in a few ways. One would be, even in that explanation, we have God deciding to do things that prevented certain free choices. So we haven't defended a full libertarian free will choice. And, and, we, and, and, and we also have God still, even if you use orchestrated event language, God is still orchestrating events for an evil act to occur. So we still haven't escaped the dilemma of God deliberately acting in history, however we might think of the mechanism, in such a way that he would ensure that an evil act would occur. I'd like to just add a little bit. Yeah. I don't disagree with that, that summary insofar as God purposes to do. Th- and that's why we, the scripture says God meant it for good. He was perfect and holy. We could say most provocatively, God is perfect and holy in his purposes for that evil to occur. Though in no way do we say he is to be charged to be at fault for that evil occurring. And the challenge is, as we wrestle with this issue, is how do we, how do we get to that place we can, we can speak in some way about the way God providentially works in history. 
and say he chooses to do some things and not other things. And we can, in some way, and what was motivating that is to say God, the love of the, a loving God, would not in any way, in no way can we charge God for evil. And there's a difference in how we explain that. And the reason I'm here is because I don't think we get away from, we, don't, we haven't escaped that dilemma. I agree. And so the question is, how do we best explain for that? How do we account for the data of Scripture, which doesn't give us a way to have, can I say, an, an, ultimist, an ultimately rationalistic um, interpretation of the mechanism there is in the way God purposes and wills and the choice of humans? And that's why there's this, this wrestling where we're trying to figure out how do we reconcile all the data of Scripture and, and how we account for that. Okay, I'll bear their hands everywhere. <laughs> I'm only halfway through this lesson, so... Um, uh, April. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just really interesting to hear that talked about of um, the root of the words used was he taught it in a way of God didn't give Pharaoh a hard heart. He took a desire that was already there and allowed it to be hardened and used that as a punishment to Pharaoh, but still used it for his will and ultimately for his glory and his good and what he was planning. Um, and I, I don't know how, you know, what you would say to this. Yeah, I think that's where we ultimately find some rest for our souls when we can't find, like, a thoroughly satisfying explanation. Yeah. I have to keep going back to God's goodness and God's glory and God's purposes um, in, in how that's being worked out. I, Brad, did I see you? Um, so, like, the story of Joseph and Sabine in the Old Testament, when you look at it from a different perspective that um, God's intentions are examples for see how he does things, how he works through these people. He's still in the, in the Old Testament. The brothers of Joseph, he worked, like, we all experience evil, so we question that, like, why did this happen? Why is that happening? But we can look at it from that story and say, well, it was meant for good. It's going to end up being for good, to glorify, to glorify God ultimately. Yes, yeah. And, 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 Yeah, because we have a we have a sense when we experience evil, a sense of meaninglessness, a sense of an arbitrary act, a, a sense of, you know, God, if you love me, why would why does this evil happen to me? And yeah, here's an example of God in His perfect wisdom intending certain evil things to occur, 
And in that intention, we cannot charge him with an evil intention. He has a good intention. And, but, but I don't think we've humanly um, can ultimately be satisfied in how God does that. We, we rest in the reality because we see the big picture. God is holy and good, and he's going to bring about good. Um, praise God that in the midst of the suffering and the experience of evil, we rest in the ultimate realization that God is a good and faithful God. Yeah. Yeah. But the Old Testament, I feel, is there for us to give us why. You know, you can look at all these stories and, and look back and say, God worked these out. He worked all these situations out. Yeah, I, I think he gives us the ultimate why, but we still wrestle with some of the intermediary whys. Yeah. Do I see a hand over here somewhere before I go over here? Okay, John. Yeah. No, so, John Stone. Yeah. I mean, I'm not suggesting that I think he's that's what he did. He, exactly. Yeah, and, and so we're back to wrestling somehow with, with um, like, the kind of the way God's working out his purposes. Okay, there's just a few minutes left. I just want to say a few more final thoughts, and then you can come up and harass me once we close. Um, so I think one of the reasons... I and those who don't hold this position find that libertarian position unsatisfying is it doesn't end up solving the dilemma that we perceive in the text. And in seeking to solve the dilemma, I think, creates some challenges. Um, one of those being that the, there's an idea of God limiting an aspect of his being. So God is sovereign. He could do many things, but he chooses to limit his sovereignty in order to give people, because God values so highly the freedom of people, to give them the freedom to make those choices, God deliberately limits the exercise of his sovereignty. I think that is a, I find that problematic as we think about the nature and operation of God. Um, Just trying to quickly get through some material here. Maybe I'll just finish here. Um, So I also think that as as the critique there of libertarian free free will, I think some of the interpretive steps um, also gets us into trouble. I think think this is one of the challenges. As humans, I think we have the tendency, maybe I can use the word, to supersize God and attribute to him the functioning like we function. So we think about the way our choices and actions relate, and we think about the way God's choices and actions are reflected in this world, and we see the same mechanism or the same causal connections. So um, we would, part of the critique is if, if God determines all things, then the way he determines it in a human, in human history, is the same way we might make a choice. 
And I, that's one of the reasons I, I pointed to Genesis, though there are alternative interpretations. I think one of the reasons I think Genesis is helpful because it confronts us with the reality that the way we intend to do a certain act is not the same category kind of thing as what happens when God intends certain things to happen in history. And I think that, that, that pattern can, can be held throughout Scripture. That, that God does something and we want to attribute the same causal connections that we experience in our choice and action to God. And, and they're, they're not the same thing. And I think Scripture would cause us to say that the creator who created all things out of nothing has a particular kind of relationship to his creation that is fundamentally distinct to the way we relate to other people and the way, as it were, we relate and act in creation. And I think we get into trouble when we try to reason the action of God in the same way that we reason the action of people. And if, 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 we're, if we're willing to acknowledge that, then we will be careful in the kind of inferences that we draw from various passages of Scripture, inferences on the action of God as it relates to our action in history. Okay, I'm, we're going to have to pause there and um, do more next week. Let me. Pray.